Hello and welcome to the third season of the Hermeneutics Podcast. I'm your host, Naam O'Brien, and this is the program dedicated to the art and science of biblical interpretation. Continuing on in our study of the history of hermeneutics, we come now to the great Rabbi Hillel. According to Roy Zuck, Hillel was born in or around Babylon sometime in the first century BC. At some point, Hillel moved to Palestine to study the law. Hillel is described as, quote, a person of exemplary, even superlative virtues. He is, in the traditional accounts, the model of patience, and even when repeated attempts are made by some to insult him, his equanimity and civility remain unaffected. He appears as a fervent advocate of peaceful conduct, a lover of all men, a diligent student, a persuasive and ready teacher, and a man of thorough and cheerful trust in God. Hillel appears to have been a model Jewish rabbi and earned quite the reputation. As I noted previously, it is possible that Hillel was one of the teachers who interacted with the 12-year-old Jesus at the temple because their lives may have overlapped. Hillel's contribution and significance to rabbinic interpretation is difficult to exaggerate. Verkler notes that Hillel is, quote, credited with developing the basic rules of rabbinic exegesis, end quote. Farrar goes on to say that Hillel, quote, may be regarded as the founder of the rabbinic system, end quote. Hillel would establish the School of Hillel, or sometimes called the House of Hillel, a place where he taught on theology and practice. The School of Hillel would often clash with its rival school, the School of Shammai. Following the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the school of Shammai, according to Zuck, would decline in relative obscurity while, quote, the school of Hillel became prominent, end quote. Farrar claims that the seven rules of exegesis developed by Hillel, quote, were the basis of all later developments of the oral law, end quote. One might go so far as to say that Hillel was the father of the Talmudic interpretation or exegesis. The seven exegetical rules developed by Hillel are among the earliest, if not the earliest, set of systematized hermeneutical principles. Henry Verkler notes that the rules, quote, emphasize the comparison of ideas, words, and phrases found in more than one text, the relationship of general principles to particular instances, and the importance of context in interpretation, end quote. So let's take a closer look at the seven exegetical rules developed by Rabbi Hillel. The seven rules of Hillel are, one, light and heavy, two, equivalence, three, deduction from special to general, four, an inference from several passages, five, inference from the general to the special, six, analogy of another passage, and seven, an inference from the context. As was previously noted, some of Hillel's rules are simple and simply the result of logic. Others may even be observed within scripture. So let's go to the first one. Light and heavy. The first exegetical rule of Hillel is light and heavy. Farrar states that this first rule, quote, is simply an application of the ordinary argument from the lesser to the greater, end quote. Kaiser and Silva refer to this rule as the, quote, inference from the lighter meaning, meaning the minor premise, to the heavier or 
major premise, end quote. Both textbooks view the rule as being an a fortiori argument. An a fortiori argument is a Latin term meaning from the stronger argument. The dictionary notes, quote, the term is used when drawing a conclusion that's even more obvious or convincing than the one just drawn, end quote. Kaiser and Silva note, quote, this simply means that what is true of the lesser is true also of the greater, end quote. A simple example will help illustrate. If a target is out of range at 100 meters, the target is most definitely out of range at 1,000 meters. The argument, though technically not a logical certainty or proof, is still a valid form of argumentation. If the target at which I am taking aim is out of range at 100 meters, then the greater distance of 1,000 meters would also be out of range. Examples of a fortiori argumentation can be found throughout Scripture as well. Consider, for example, the a fortiori argument by Jesus in Matthew 7:11. Quote, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? End quote. Note the movement from the light to the heavy, or from the lesser to the greater. If earthly fathers who are evil know how to give good gifts to their children, then surely God, the Father who is in heaven, who is holy, will give good gifts and good things to his children. Or consider the entire book of Hebrews, which is a large a fortiori argument for the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Consider Hebrews 9:13-14. Quote, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? End quote. Note again the movement of the author of Hebrews from the lesser to the greater. So how might this rule be used by Hillel in interpretation? Kaiser and Silva offer an example, quote, Thus, since the Sabbath was more important than the other festival days, a restriction placed on an annual festival day was even more applicable to the Sabbath day, end quote. Note the logical movement from the lesser to the greater. If the Sabbath is the most important festival day, and there are restrictions placed on festival days in general, then those restrictions are even more important on the Sabbath. Again, keep in mind, while the logic is sound, the conclusion may not always be correct. Kaiser and Silva are merely offering an example of how the light and heavy rule might be used in an interpretive process. So while the rule of light and heavy may be appropriate, it doesn't guarantee appropriate interpretations. As I've said before, even good rules of interpretation can be misused and abused, leading to all sorts of horrific misinterpretations of God's Word. How about an example? Farrar provides an amazing example of how Hillel's first rule was misused and abused. Quote, Thus, Rabbi Eliezer, the teacher of Equibah, used the first rule, the common argument of a fortiori, to prove that the fire of Gehenna had no power over rabbinic scholars, since, he said, 
Fire has no power over a man who smears himself with the blood of a salamander, which is only a product of fire. How much less will it prevail over a pupil of the wise whose body is altogether fire? Because of his study of the word of God, which in Jeremiah 23:29 is said to be as fire, end quote. I was amazed when I first read that quote. The logic behind such an argument is absolutely absurd. However, technically speaking, it is an argument from light to heavy. Thus, while Jesus and the author of Hebrews use the a fortiori argument and arrive at appropriate and correct conclusions, Rabbi Eleazar used the a fortiori argument and arrived at an inappropriate and incorrect conclusion. If this example wasn't strange enough, the same logic was used by Rabbi Simon ben Lakish to argue that, quote, no Israelite could suffer the penalty of Gehenna, end quote. What was his reasoning? For our rights, quote, the gold plate on the offer resisted fire, how much more even a transgressor of Israel, end quote. As you can see, there are and were some major problems with rabbinic exegesis. Which brings us to the second rule, equivalence, sometimes known as the equivalence of expressions. The second exegetical rule of Hillel is equivalence. Farrar explains, quote, The rule of equivalence infers a relation between two subjects from the occurrence of identical expressions, end quote. Kaiser and Silva refer to this rule as the analogy of expressions and explain, quote, Ambiguous passages were explained by drawing an inference from similar words or phrases used elsewhere, end quote. An example may help. We read in 1 Samuel 1, 11, quote, And she, meaning Hannah, vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. End quote. The key words or phrases in this text are quote, all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. From there, from these two texts, it might be deduced that Hannah intended to dedicate her son, should God give her a son, under the Nazarite vow, and thus Samuel is said to have been a Nazarite. This deduction is based off of Numbers 6 and Judges 13. In Numbers 6, you will find the phrase, all the days, repeated over and over, as well as the phrase, no razor shall touch his head, for instance, in 6 verse 5. There are two more requirements listed that are not mentioned in 1 Samuel 1, to not consume any product made of grapes and to not go near a dead body. However, it is still reasonable to deduce, based on similar language found in both passages, that Samuel became a Nazarite. Furthermore, we read in Judges 13.5, For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child, meaning Samson, shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines." Note the Nazarite vow is mentioned along with the phrase, no razor shall come upon his head. Thus, according to the second rule of Hillel, the Jewish interpreter would deduce, as would we, that Samuel and Samson were both Nazarites. As you can see, some of Hillel's rules were merely logic in action. 
Kaiser and Silva offer another example, quote, Accordingly, since Leviticus 16.29 requires Jews to afflict their souls on the Day of Atonement, without explaining what the nature of that affliction is, it was interpreted to mean the Jews should abstain from food on Yom Kippur, since that same expression is used in Deuteronomy 8.3 with explicit mention of hunger, end quote. Farrar offers a few more examples of the, shall we say, more ridiculous nature. Farrar writes, quote, Thus it is argued that Job married Dina because the word a foolish woman is applied alike to the daughter of Jacob and the wife of Job, end quote. Apparently there arose an interpretation that Job's wife was none other than Dina, the daughter of Jacob. This interpretation was based upon the equivalence of expressions found in Genesis 34.7 and Job 2.10. In Job 2.10, Job says to his wife, quote, You speak as one of the foolish women speak, end quote. The term Job uses is Nabal, which is translated a foolish woman. A similar phrase, though not identical, is found in Genesis 34.7, quote, The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Quote. The phrase outrageous thing is the Hebrew term nebala, as both terms share the same root word. Some rabbi deduced that Job's wife was none other than Jacob's daughter Dina. This interpretation was based on Hillel's second rule, the equivalence of expression. I agree with Farrar, who noted that the second rule, though not wrong in and of itself, quote, furnished an excuse for masses of the most absurd conclusions, end quote. An even more egregious example will be provided in a few moments when rule two and four are combined to bend the law of God. But let's go to the third, deduction from special to general. The third exegetical rule of Hillel is deduction from special to general. Kaiser and Silva explain, quote, In this rule, texts were applied to cases if they were similar in nature, even though they were not directly covered in the scripture cited. In other words, a general principle was constructed on the basis of a teaching contained in one verse, end quote. A few examples will once again help illustrate how this rule was exercised. The first example comes from Kaiser and Silva, quote, the case of an accidental killing of a fellow woodsman in Deuteronomy 19 could be applied to any accidental death resulting from two men working together in any public place, end quote. Notice the deduction from the special or specific, the law in Deuteronomy 19 concerning manslaughter in which the specific example of accidental death of a neighbor due to a flying axe head, to the general, the law would therefore be extended and applied to other cases of involuntary manslaughter. This would be a proper deduction as the context of Deuteronomy 19 seems to be using the example of a woodcutter as but one of many possible instances in which this law would apply. Farrar offers a second example. Quote, Thus since work might be done on the Sabbath for necessary food, Necessary food might also be prepared on the other festivals, end quote. 
As I said before, many of Hillel's rules are simply the use of basic logic and or common sense. In this case, it was deduced that if one was allowed to prepare necessary food on the Sabbath, then surely it must be fine to prepare necessary food on other festivals unless otherwise specifically prohibited. This is simply a logical deduction from the special to the general. A final example can be found in a rabbinical interpretation of Leviticus 17.13. Quote, Anyone also of the people of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who takes in hunting any beast or bird that they may be eaten, shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. End quote. From this text, rabbinical law forbid the use of the feet when one covered the blood of the animal on the ground with dirt. So imagine this. You have just finished draining the blood from an animal, and the blood is laying or pooling on the ground. The law demands that you cover up the blood with earth or dirt. The law makes no specific requirement as to how to cover the blood with dirt. Yet in Shabbat 22a, rabbinical law teaches that the blood must be covered by hand, to kick dirt on the blood, for example, would be illegal. How did they arrive at this interpretation? It is a deduction made from the special to the general. The logic is found in Shabbat 22a, quote, Does the blood of a slaughtered undomesticated animal or fowl have sanctity? As it was taught in Abariata that the sages interpreted the verse, He shall spill its blood and cover it with dust, Leviticus 17.13, with that which he spilled, he shall cover. Just as a person spills the blood of a slaughtered animal with his hand, so too he is obligated to cover the blood with this hand and not cover it with his foot. End quote. Did you notice the logic? If the Lord commanded that the blood be spilt, and blood may only be spilt by the use of one's hands, thus covering the blood must be performed by the hands also. Any other method would be undignified. As I noted before, just because the logic behind some of Hillel's rules is reasonable, that doesn't guarantee accurate conclusions, nor prevent absurd interpretations. As Farrar notes, quote, In the hands of a Calzist, these harmless-looking principles might be used, and were used to give plausibility to the most unwarrantable conclusions, end quote. Now, we are going to leave it there for now because we have run out of time. On the next episode, we will continue Hillel's Seven Rules of Exegesis.